text I will be preaching from today is from Micah 5, verses 1 through 5. Now muster your troops, O daughter of troops. Siege is laid against us. With a rod they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, you who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Therefore he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel. And he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they shall dwell secure, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I am sure most of you have used Google Street View, which is a really neat tool online where you're looking at Google Maps and you can look from above like you're staring down out of the sky and you can see a map or you can click a button and it all of a sudden it's a satellite picture or you can get right down in there with street view and get a 360 degree view all the way around of any address pretty much anywhere. I remember when I first discovered this years and years ago, I, I had fun with it for hours. I started looking at my house even though I know what my house looks like. And I was like, wow, it's almost like I'm standing in the middle of my street and I can move in any direction, which is, I mean, I could never do that before. Uh, and then I came and I look at the church from all the different directions. And I started looking at my elementary school and the house where I grew up and all these things. And it was amazing to me. And sometimes you see these cars driving around and they have those big kind of dome cameras on top and they're getting all of these pictures as they drive. They got a GPS tagging each picture of exactly where it is. And sometimes you're tempted to think we've reached the point where everything everywhere is completely indexed and marked and photographed and we've got it all. But that's not true. There are plenty of areas that do not have a Google Street View or anything like it. And one of those was the Faroe Islands, which is an autonomous island territory within the kingdom of uh, Denmark. And a few years ago, they called up Google, or one of their uh, state officials did, or I don't know, maybe it's small enough where they all kind of got on the call. And they said, listen, we would really like to be indexed in Google Street View, but we know why you haven't done it yet. Our little streets and roads and paths aren't exactly conducive to these rear-wheel drive cars that you bring around. We know it's mostly kind of green, uh, sprawling, beautiful land, but we'd like to be included. So we suggest that... You do a sheep cam instead, Google Sheep View, that we will strap these 360-degree cameras onto the backs of sheep that roam all over, and as they roam, they will index our islands, spanning the, the remote beauty of this place. And when they received the proposal, Google, sensing that this was something that might go viral, came out with a press release declaring this to be, wait for it, sheer brilliance and supplied the island with all the necessary equipment. And the project was completed a couple of years ago, and you can go on and you can see this now. And when I looked around, it seemed like most of the important places had been photographed by humans. But you certainly can tell that some of it has been sheep out just grazing and wandering wherever they went and recording these things as they went. And one Google Maps program manager, who is definitely someone's dad, 
reflecting on the success of this project, said, It's our mission to make the furthest corners of the world accessible through Street View in the palm of your hand. Now, thanks to these sheep, you can explore the Faroe Islands in Google Maps. It just goes to show, if there's a wool, there's a way. Respect. Dad recognizes Dad there. Now, Bethlehem was an awful lot like that. As we read about this in Matthew 5, or I'm sorry, in Micah 5, uh, as we read about you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, though you are the least amongst the tribes of Israel. An unimpressive place, a place that would not have been included in the Google Street View of its day. In fact, maybe the Google Street View of the ancient Near East is all of these lists of cities that we find in ancient writings, like the book of Joshua, where there is a list of 100 towns, villages, and cities in this region, and it doesn't even include Bethlehem, or Ephrath, as it was called at the time. And yet... This is going to be the birthplace of the Messiah. This will be such a significant place in salvation history. In fact, before that, it's going to be significant because of someone else. See, God has a habit of choosing unimpressive places and people to do His great deeds because it takes the pressure and the attention and all of these things off of them and puts the attention and the glory and the fame onto Him. I mean, we could think of almost any story from the Old Testament. A good example might be Moses. I mean, this guy's a shepherd, which is not anybody that you'd look up to in that day and age. He is a, a, a criminal and a fugitive. He's a quitter. He's somebody who, he's a has-been. He used to be in Pharaoh's court. Then he was outed as being, belonging to this class of people that everyone looked down on. And now he's out just hiding out, and he thinks he's going to do this the rest of his life. That's not a great person, and yet God does great things through him. We think of Peter, a hothead, kind of a dope, uh, yet God uses him. He's a braggart. He's saying, I'll do these great things, and then he's failing, but God says, just trust me, as soon as you realize you can't, you can't do it, then I can do it through you. Or think of Esther. She's just nobody. All she's done is won a contest she didn't even want to enter. And yet, when it comes down to it, God works mightily through her to save all of Israel. I think that often we hear in the world echoes of this idea that there are people that are too small, too insignificant to do anything. We say this to ourselves sometimes. You know, I think of the, the fair. One thing I've really missed this year was going to the Ingham County Fair with my son. We often will go, and sometimes we'll drag my wife along as well, and we will eat the greasy food and get on the rides that spin us until we feel like we're going to throw up. That's fun. This year we couldn't do it. But you know what? I love those fairs despite one of my earliest bad memories, you know, a memory of kind of rejection and disappointment being at a fair like that. There was a church just down the street I lived on growing up called St. John's Catholic Church, I went back there a few months ago, and now it's St. Jude Thaddeus, like there was a coup or something, but anyway, it's still a Catholic church, and in their parking lot, there would be this big, sprawling fair, rides and games, midway and all this stuff, and I remember the day that me and a couple of my friends were there, it was just night, it was really exciting to be there without parents, and waiting in line for this thing that was, you know, spin you and bring you up and down and all this stuff, and when we got to the front, there was that, that big wooden dowel Marked off, you must be at least this tall. One of my friends was tall enough, and me and my other friend were not. And none of us went on, and I was crushed. You must be this big to ride this 
ride. What a terrible, terrible thing. It seemed like I was the, the victim of just great discrimination and injustice in that moment. Um, incidentally, Noel Harshman has a, a pending lawsuit against one of these fairs for exactly that reason from 2018. No, she doesn't. That's not real. But the idea that you must be this big, this tall, this important in order to take part in this. I think we say this to ourselves as well. We think, you know, somebody needs to tell this person about Jesus. They, they obviously need him. I'm kind of in proximity to them, but I mean, I'm not the guy for that. I definitely I wait for somebody else who's a little bit more uh, pedigreed and a little, a more educated, a little more bold, a little more eloquent to come along and do that. Or perhaps we see something happening that's wrong that needs to be called out and stopped that someone needs to kind of prophetically say, this, this is not okay. And we think, oh, I could do that, but uh, I don't, I'm not exactly the, the strongest personality. Maybe I'll wait till someone else starts it and then, then I'll get on board. We see this throughout the scriptures as well. Moses did not say, oh, you want me to go to Egypt? All right, I'm on my way back right now. No, 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 no. I can't go. I don't know enough. They won't buy it. They won't believe me. They know my backstory. They don't respect me. And God kind of lets them wear himself out. And he says, listen, I'll give you everything you need. You're going. He says, oh, no, 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 no. I, I don't make uh, good mouth with words mine. And God says, all right, I'll send your brother Aaron and he'll be your spokesman. You're going. And around and around they go until finally Moses says, all right, I'll go. I'll bring the staff that turns into a serpent. I'll bring my brother who can be eloquent. I'll, I'll go and I'll trust that you will accomplish this through me. Or we think of Jonah. He was told, go to Assyria. In fact, if I had kept reading in verse 5, when the Assyrians come into our land and tread in our palaces, then he will raise up against him seven shepherds. There's this fear of the Assyrians all the time. They're this, this nightmare people off building an empire. And Jonah is told, go tell them, repent. And he knows if I go tell them to repent, they might, and then God will spare them. And so he runs, he flees, he goes in the other direction. And yet... When he finally is swallowed by a whale and then puked up on the shore, he goes and he does it and God uses him mightily. Or perhaps the most famous example of God using a little guy to do big things comes from Bethlehem, Ephrathah. Hundreds of years before Jesus was born. Actually, about a thousand years a little guy named David who was deemed, first of all, too small to even be considered whether he would be anointed king when his brothers were brought before Samuel one by one, and then certainly considered too, too small to fight against the giant Goliath. That's exactly what Saul says. He takes one look at him, and the king says, this is, he's just a shrimp. And David responds, let me tell you about my background. I'm a shepherd, and any time a bear or a lion comes through one of my sheep, I grab it by the jaw, and beat it to death with a club. To which I'm pretty sure everyone went, okay, go ahead, fight the giant. He wasn't too small. He did great things. And of course, he then became the king of Israel and Judah, a united monarchy. A great king, the king to which all other kings tried to live up to that bar of kingliness and glory and seeking after God's own heart. He was the pride of Bethlehem. And yet, for Bethlehem, I mean, this had already happened when Micah writes and says you're the least of, among the tribes of Israel. For Bethlehem, they had to know he was born there, he grew up there, but then he got out of Dodge. 
He went somewhere more significant. He went to Jerusalem and built that city up. It was the, the capital. It was a real significant place. You know, when you have a city that claims someone who got out of there, it kind of rings hollow. I grew up in Bay City, Michigan. Madonna's from there. But she always talked about how happy she was to get out of town. And then when I was about 20, she was like, well, here's a statue of me. And we were like, uh, no, thank you. Here in Lansing, I think we've got people that, that, that uh, like Magic Johnson will come back. He's like, this is my hometown, Everett's my high school, I'm excited. But, but you also have uh, you know, people who grew up here and left. Steven Seagal never comes back. Have you noticed that? Where's Steven? Malcolm X grew, uh, was born here and, and, and he moved on and went to bigger cities, New York, and, and became a global figure. And you think, okay, you're from here. You could put it on the sign. But this person didn't claim this town as their hometown. And in fact, even to use Lansing as just way too significant of a city. We're like Jerusalem, the capital of where we are. And there's a lot going on beyond being the birthplace of Steven Seagal, right? MSU, state government, all sorts of things. No, no this, this would be more like not even Mason or St. John's or Hazlitt. It's like Dansville, right? You probably don't know anybody from there. You might be nice there, but you've never been and you're not sure what it's like. Or like Hodgenville, Kentucky. You know why they're famous? Abraham Lincoln was born there. Nobody knows that, unless you are from Hodgenville, Kentucky, or you guys now. But he, we all know he grew up in Springfield, Illinois. It's famous. You can go there and look at the log cabin and all this stuff. But they have on their sign, birthplace of Abraham Lincoln, for whatever that's worth, an accident of history. And there's something a little sad in there, I think. Whether it's an athlete obsessed with their days on the field that are long past, or a city or a country that is all wrapped up in their glory days which are behind them, there's something empty about saying, well, let me tell you about who we were, because there's nothing to tell you about who we are or who we might be in the future. And that's kind of the position that Bethlehem was in. Insignificant, but for this little asterisk they could put on the sign. Birthplace of King David. Jesus, though, was born there in this place that's insignificant and then raised in this other place that's even more insignificant, Nazareth. Can anything good come from there? Either of these places, if they had anything going for them, it was in the past and they could think about it and they could pine for it, but that was all. The future was bleak, especially as times got tough. Those places that had something going for them could at least kind of swell up with pride. If you were from Nazareth, you just kind of flattened out and hoped that you would make it through. This all reminds me of a Christmas that I had at my grandmother's house. We used to always open presents on Christmas morning as a kid at my house, pile into the car, drive from Bay City to Holland, Michigan, or Zeeland, Michigan, and go to my grandmother's house. There's rivers and woods along the way, I guess. And when we would get out, I would be so excited because when I was a kid, all my aunts and uncles and my grandma and grandpa would buy all the grandkids presents and it just took forever. We did it the way that God intended where each person opens one while everyone watches them and then they hold it up and go, oh, that's cool, who got you that? And you know, you make a thing of it, you don't all just tear into it. And I remember one Christmas, I was so excited and my mom had told everybody, listen, I know Zach only wants toys but he needs socks and underwear. And everyone had decided, I'll let the other people get the excitement and the hugs and I'll be the one who gets the socks and underwear. So like my cousin Joe would open like a G.I. Joe battle tank. My cousin Nate would open up, you know, some amazing radio control car. And then I'd open up socks. And I tried to be good about it for a while. 
I don't, my son has the best present face, present reaction ever. You could give him a brick wrapped in newsprint and, and he would sell it, that he was so thankful and, and be so kind about it. I started to fade real quick after the third or fourth round. And when my, it really snapped for me when, when my cousin Joe opened up a He-Man figure that had this thing in his chest where when you hit it, it created like battle damage on his armor because it spun this little cylinder. Then I was like, all right, this is going to be my time. I opened it up, He-Man underwear. The dual blow of no toy, but also if anyone finds out about this He-Man underwear, I'm a dead man because I'm 11. And I remember thinking to myself, well, that was, that was a good run. Last Christmas was great, but I guess that was the last one full of toys. I'm all grown up now, but for the He-Man underwear, from here on out, things are different. Things are, the, the, the good stuff is behind me. <laughs> a real crisis of faith for 11-year-old Zach. But you know, in a very real way, I think 2020 has felt like that for a lot of people, right? The good stuff's behind us. Now it's just kind of bleak. There's no end in sight. I think they felt like that in Bethlehem. I know they felt like that in Nazareth. But Bethlehem had something far more significant going for them than a little note on the sign that says, birthplace of the shepherd boy David who became king of Israel. They had this promise. About, about the one who would come, the Messiah, that Micah here says in verse 4, he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord. There will come a shepherd king who is infinitely greater. The greater David, of whom David was just a little foreshadowing, a teaser. He was the teaser trailer for this king and his greatness and his glory. That's picked up in the New Testament. Right before you see the Christmas story in Matthew 2, you have Matthew 1. You ever read that one? It's a genealogy. It's a lot of names. And it's broken up into three sections. Each of them is 14 generations. And so there are 14 generations from Adam to here, 14 from the, the exile to... to and, and you read that, and if you compare it to the Old Testament, you're like, you're missing a bunch of generations. They're saying 14 on purpose. I've told you this before. You've probably forgotten it. Maybe jot it in your Bible. In Hebrew, letters are the numbers. Not anymore, but at that time. And so each letter had a numerical value. And the numerical value of a word would be just add them all up. And the numerical value of David is 14. And so when he says 14 generations here, 14 generations here, 14 generations, Matthew's saying, David, 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 this is the greater David, the David who will come and be so much more than Israel even dreamed he could be. Where David himself was a man of blood and war, this king, we're told here, will shepherd his people into peace and dwelling securely. And while his prophecy comes centuries after King David lived and died, and even more centuries before Jesus was born, we also see that this king was before David. In fact, when Jesus comes, he'll say, before Abraham was, I am we read here that his origin is from ancient days, from of old. Even from Micah's point of view, 700 years before Jesus was born, David was still 300 years further back. But when you look at the Hebrew here, it's even more telling that his origin is from olam, is the Hebrew word. You know how you say forever? Le'olam means to olam, to eternity, to forever. He's from eternity, from forever. This king who will come is from forever. 
That's what we see in John chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God at the beginning. He created all things. This is God the Son coming now into our history. And I think the question we never really ask is, if he was without the beginning, if he's already very much grown up, being infinity old, why does he come into our midst as a baby? Well, there's one real main reason that we're going to look at on Christmas Eve, so I'm going to skip that one. But a secondary reason is to come and live a perfect life in our midst. Not only to be an example to us, to show us what love looks like and what it looks like to be a faithful human coming as the true and perfect human, but also so that he could live the life of obedience that we could not. That Jesus could come and stand wherever we had fallen. He would stand where Adam had buckled and he would stand where you and I had fallen. A true man, born of the substance of a woman, the Virgin Mary, tempted in all ways, and yet sinned not. Think now about a time that you fell into sin. I'm not going to wait any longer because you've definitely got one. Jesus was tempted to do that type of sin. He was tempted in all ways, and he stood. He did not fall. He did not stain himself with guilt. And by believing in Jesus, that obedience becomes your obedience and your falling into sin becomes the sin that he pays for. So his obedience is placed on you and your sin was placed on him on the cross where he suffered and died and did away with it, casting it as far away as the east is from the west. That is such good news. He went to die a sinner's death, not for his own sin, since he had none, but for mine and for yours. There's even a little hint of that in here when it's not in view, in, in focus. Verse 1, we, we read in, in, in verse 1 that they would strike with a rod the leader of Israel, this coming king. That happened when Jesus was brought before Herod. He'd already been scourged and flogged, his back laid open, and they took a rough uh, piece of fabric and draped it over his shoulders and pretended it was royal robes. They put a crown of thorns on his head, a rod in his hand, fell down to worship him in mock worship. Then they grabbed the rod from him and were told they beat him again and again with that rod. This king would come not as a man of blood to bring people to their knees like David did, but to himself bleed for us out of his love, and to secure a far greater and eternal peace, greater than David ever could have hoped to accomplish. But as they took that rod, and as they looked at him with contempt, and as they beat him, they were thinking, undoubtedly, these men in high places, these, these Sadducees and priests and kings and scribes and everyone who had, had uh, position and power, you're just not important enough. You must be this important and have this much pedigree to ride this ride, to be any part of what we understand to be Israel, and certainly to lead Israel. And so they rejected him. But the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And we read here, he shall be their peace. That's the difference between a human leader can bring you peace, but it's tenuous. It won't last forever. Jesus will be our peace. And they will dwell securely, we read. 
But dwelling securely is not all he has for us. Peter says that we are the chosen treasure of God, yes, but it's not the kind of treasure that you take and just deposit in a bank account or lock away in a safe or bury underground. Jesus had a parable about that. The, the one servant who, instead of taking what God had given and going out to use it for the benefit of the master, instead buried it in the ground, buried his talents of money. And when he's called to account, he says, I knew you were a hard master. And the master says, no, you didn't. You never knew me, and I never knew you. And casts him out of his presence. If he'd known the master, he would have known he was patient and long-suffering. And that sometimes, when it seems that God is doing nothing, we have to trust that he is slowly at work in us, amongst us. They had to do that in Bethlehem for many, many years. And yet God did come through. I think again of, of Charlie Brown. You know, I, I was talking about how Charlie Brown may be the most Christian Christmas special uh, a few years ago on Christmas morning uh, when, it, when it happened to fall on a Sunday. Because not only do you have this beautiful moment where Linus, he, he says to Charlie Brown, listen, it's not about commercialism, but it's also not about just a feeling of love or, or giving or, or gratitude or anything. What do you want to know what Christmas is about? And then Linus, who always has that security blanket, drops it and begins to just recite from memory the nativity story from the Gospel of Luke. And then he says, that's what Christmas is about, Charlie Brown. And it wrecks me every time. And this from a guy who was literally the leader of a pagan pumpkin-worshipping cult just two months earlier. Now he's on fire for Jesus. But there's another thing going on here. And that is that, that Charlie Brown is the worst choice for the Christmas pageant, right? To lead this thing, he's the last guy you'd want. You must be this much of a winner in order to ride this ride. He doesn't make it. He's a blockhead, right? Literally, of all the Charlie Browns in the world, this one's the Charlie Browniest. And when he goes out to get a tree, he sees all these glitzy things, the one made of aluminum. He sees the big, huge... And what is he drawn to? The tiny, scrawny one that's half leaned over. And I think, oh, that is, that is good doctrine. This is very, very true Christmassy. And he brings it back, and what do they do? They reject it, they mock him, they laugh at him. I'm not making Charlie Brown into a Christ figure, but there's themes here. And then, when they finally understand, and they come around the tree, here's where they lose me. Because first of all, they steal all of Snoopy's decorations. That's not okay. And then they gather around the tree and they obscure it. Like there's some trickery involved. You can't see the tree for a second. And when they back away, not only does it have lights and ornaments, but there's been a lot of growth. There's a lot of new greenery there. It looks like many years of growing have passed in this tree. And I think in that moment we see how even when we understand that God uses those who are insignificant and unimpressive to do great things, we often assume that it will always be immediate. And that's what we demand, right? David, it didn't take a long time. I can kill the giant. That armor doesn't fit me. Give me five minutes to find some stones and I'll take care of it this afternoon. No problem. And sometimes God does work that way, but far more often it is a slow process which requires us to wait as Bethlehem Ephrathah had to wait. Because Christ's birth fulfills not only Micah 5, 
and Isaiah 40 and Isaiah 9 and all these passages that we think of, but all of the Old Testament from Genesis 3 on. All that time building up to this act of deliverance. And in this passage, too, is built in the idea that bad times will come. If we continue to read in verse 5 and verse 6, they shall shepherd the land of Assyria with the sword, the land of Nimrod. He shall deliver from us, from the Assyrians, when comes into our land those who tread within our borders. It's compared in verse 3 to a woman giving birth. We have this what's called a near-far prophecy here where there's an immediate uh, fulfillment, which is a lesser fulfillment, and then there's also immediately understood amongst the rabbis and those who are waiting for the Messiah a bigger promise for the future. And so probably what's being said here in verse 3 is that a woman who is, is uh, pregnant, when the Assyrians will come in and attack and begin their siege, by the time she gives birth, God will have delivered them. But then Jesus picks up on some of these birth pain uh, language and themes and, and begins to say, you know, that, that the suffering of God's people is like birth pains. There are times when it's very bad and there are times when it eases up and there are times when it comes back even worse. But at one point, the birth will happen and the joy will overshadow all of the pain that came before it. Well, we see that from the days that Micah makes this prophecy, for centuries and centuries, a lot of bad stuff happens. Not only the Assyrians come in, but then the Babylonians come in and conquer them and destroy the temple, exile them. Then they're ruled by the Greeks and the, the Seleucids. Then the Romans come in and all this bad stuff is happening. And it's like birth pains. And sure, there's times like during the intertestamental period when they rule themselves under the Hasmonean dynasty. But for the most part, they're saying, why is this not happening yet? Where's this great shepherd who's going to come and bring us peace? so that we will dwell securely. But as they waited, they kept hope. It's interesting to me is in Matthew 2, this text is quoted, and when it's quoted, it's a little different. The, the uh, wise men come, the magi from the east, and they come into Herod's palace, and they say, where are we going to find this baby? Where are we going to find this king that we can worship him? And so Herod brings in all the, the experts in the law and, and the scribes and the Pharisees, and they say, well, you'll find him in Bethlehem, for it is written. But when they quote this, they say, you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are by no means least among the tribes of Israel. It seems like the opposite. You are least amongst the tribes of Israel, or you are by no means least among the tribes of Israel. Which is it? Well, I think the answer is that there's no real contradiction. That as time went on, as they began to put their hope more and more in the one who would come and be born in Bethlehem and deliver them, they began to think in higher and higher terms of this out-of-the-way, insignificant place. And recognize that it is not too small. But notice this. What Bethlehem is not too small for is to be the location of the Messiah's arrival. Bethlehem is not too insignificant to be the location of the Messiah's presence. Not Bethlehem is not too small to do something great if they band together. Bethlehem is not too small, not too insignificant to be where God comes down and begins a great work. That I think, is the application. When we want to say to ourselves, no, 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 don't, you can't do this. Don't build yourself up in the flesh. Yes, I can. I can do it. I can do it. Let's go. 
Remember, I'm not too insignificant. If Bethlehem's not, if Jonah's not, if Peter's not, I'm not too insignificant to be the stage of God's great work. Not long ago, in Sunday school, I was uh, busting Alex Police's chops, which is a hobby of mine. Um, and, and I don't know, something about the way he reacts just gives me such great joy. And, and, and one day, as I was doing this, he said the, the, best, the best retort ever. You know, Pastor Zach, sometimes I feel like a stage for you to dance on. <laughs> which, which I had to admit was just all kinds of brilliant and clever and witty and funny. But then because, you know, I'm so pastoral and holy, I started thinking, that is how we ought to see ourselves. <laughs> a stage for God to be performing on. Not any one of us is too small, too weak, too sinful, too fragile, too fallen to be the staging ground for Jesus to be glorified and lifted up before a world that is lost and broken and in horribly desperate need of Him. And when the, the carnies of the world, and I, I'm not down, uh, speaking down of, of carnies, but, but metaphorical carnies of the world want to say to us, you don't measure up. You're nothing, you're too little, you're too insignificant. We don't say, wait, I am. I can grab the bear by the jaw and beat him. No, we can't. I can't. You can't. Instead, we point to Jesus and say, sure, but he's not. And he is the one who will be at work in me. We point to him and say, he clears the bar. He clears every bar. He is almighty, all-righteous, all-powerful, all-present. He is God himself. You know, God wasn't happy that Jonah ran away and Moses argued with him three or four rounds, but God forgave them and used them. And just as Jonah eventually said to those Assyrians, if you repent, you will be saved, you will be forgiven. If we repent, God will save us and use us. Not just that we'll dwell securely, not that we'll be buried in, in the ground and dug up later, but that He will indeed use us. He will take your little life, my little life, our little faith, though it be least among the tribes of His people, and use us. And when we stand at the last before Him, there will be no devil, no accuser standing there to point and say, too small, faith too small, good deeds too small, sin too big, there will only be Jesus there whose obedience has been applied to us and who bore our sins, holding open arms, welcoming us into his presence for all eternity. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this prophecy in Micah which says you will use the most insignificant of places, that you will come into a world where there is a lack of hope and a lack of light, and you will bring hope and light with you that you are so mighty that you can save us despite ourselves. And Lord, we pray that, that we would remember that even a Roman cross, a cursed piece of wood upon which people were tortured and killed was not too insignificant or too dirty or too, too uh, profane to be used as the place where you would bring salvation to all people. And Lord, we pray that we would remember that there is not a single person here who's too insignificant, too small, to say, I may not clear the bar, but Jesus does. To open ourselves up to be used by you for your glory. We pray these things in Jesus' holy name. Amen.